0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 371st episode, we've got a bunch of news, including two new dinosaurs. I've got a carnivore and you've got a herbivore, right?
1: Possibly an omnivore.
0: Okay. Still not quite as ferocious as mine, probably. We'll we'll see. (laughs) We also have an interview with David Levering about virtual museums, specifically the virtual museum that he made and we have dinosaur of the day probactrosaurus but before we get into all of that we want to thank some of our patrons and this week we want to thank scott mycoraptor ashley the acrocanthosaurus bill jago danny hermes bradley james pasco dennis saltosaurus paul acanthus and joey
1: yeah thank you so much everybody and happy new year We're starting off 2022 pretty strong, I think, and we appreciate all of your support. Jumping into the news, I get to start. There's a new toothless ceratosaur, Berthasaura leopoldinae, which was recently named.
0: Toothless ceratosaur? Mm Mm-hmm. That's super weird.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The paper's called The First Edentulous Ceratosaur from South America. By Giovanni Alves de Souza and others, and published in scientific reports. So, the skeleton was found in a rural road between 2011 and 2014.
0: It was found in a road?
1: Yes. It was in layers that it's a crop out in a rural road in southern Brazil.
0: Okay. So, maybe next to a road, not necessarily like tigers rolling over it.
1: The holotype's a nearly complete disarticulated skeleton that includes a partial skull and lower jaw. And they found a skull and jaw, spine, pectoral and pelvic girdles, and fore and hind limbs. And they're really well-preserved fossils.
0: That's pretty good, finding the arms, legs, and jaw plus the back.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty complete. They're estimating that Berthasaura was about three feet or one meters long. That's tiny. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, had a gracile skull and a slightly downturned rostral tip.
0: So sort of like the tip of the beak, I guess, in this case, since it doesn't have teeth, is turned down.
1: We don't know if it had a beak. It may have had a beak.
0: So it might have just had like no beak and no teeth, just like gums. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's unclear if it was a carnivore or an herbivore. It is possibly an omnivore.
0: That's so weird. I can't imagine a dinosaur without a beak and without teeth. What even, what is left?
1: Well, that's why it says it may have had a beak. It's scapula, the shoulder blade. It's slender and long and longer than the humerus. And then, as you mentioned, it was toothless. It's the first toothless theropod found in Brazil. And there's no signs of any tooth-bearing cavities. They did CT scans. They confirmed it didn't have teeth. It never had teeth. At least this specimen didn't but this skeleton was probably a young subadult because there's these unfused elements in the skull and vertebral column so it wasn't skeletally mature that means that it may never have had teeth if it did have teeth it's possible that Berthosaurus lost its teeth at a younger age than a comparable toothless theropod limusaurus and limusaurus was a theropod that lived in the late jurassic in what is now china
0: Yeah, and lemursaurus, I remember when that one, or when we first talked about that one and how it lost its teeth as it got older, but it was replaced with a beak Mm -hmm. in that case, which is why I always think it's either teeth or beak when you're talking about a dinosaur. I can't imagine no teeth, no beak, but I guess (laughs) everything I can't imagine with dinosaurs, there seems to be one example of, so who knows?
1: Yeah, you just never know. So since the two are kind of similar in being toothless theropods, They compared Berthasaurus with multiple skeletons representing different growth stages of Lemusaurus to help kind of figure out how old this Berthasaurus specimen was. And they compared the fused elements and they also did some histology. And that's how they determined it was probably a young subadult.
0: Okay. If they're comparing it to Lemusaurus and they think it's really similar, that makes me again think beak.
1: Mm. But again, we just don't know for sure at this point. The type species is Berthasora leopoldinae, and the genus named Bertha is in honor of Bertha Maria Julia Lutz, a biologist and social activist when it came to women's rights in Brazil. The species name is in honor of the first Brazilian empress, Maria Leopoldina, for her role in making Brazil independent and for the Samba school, Imperatriz Leopoldinense. Quote, according to the paper, that in the 2018 carnival, Developed the theme A Royal Night at the Museum Nacional, and that was to commemorate the bicentenary of the museum. Berthosaurus lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Parana, Brazil, in the Baru Basin. It lived in a desert, and it's estimated to have lived about 70 to 80 million years ago. Berthosaurus is only the second non non-saurosaurian theropod, after Limusaurus, that is known to not have teeth. And with Lemusaurus, Lemusaurus was about three years older than this Berthosaurus specimen when it gradually lost teeth over time. Both Berthosaur and Lemusaurus are noosaurids. However, they're not closely related. But the fact that both of them lost their teeth may mean that loss of teeth evolved independently at least twice in noosaurids.
0: Yeah, noosaurids are close relatives of abelosaurids. And also usually considered toothy carnivorous in dinosaurs, like Mexicasaurus, which has those teeth that kind of stick out of its mouth. It's got so many teeth, big old freaky teeth.
1: But not all of them have teeth.
0: Yeah, that's weird. And you were saying that might be an omnivore too.
1: The authors kind of ended the paper with there's these characteristics that in other animals we think are make them herbivorous, but you can't just look at this and think that makes it an herbivore there Could be other things going on.
0: Gotcha. So now I've got my new dinosaur, which is way less weird,
1: but maybe more ferocious.
0: Yeah, probably. It's a new raptor from the Isle of Wight, and it was published in Cretaceous Research, or it's technically in press by Nicholas Longrich and others. And the new dinosaur is named Vectoraptor green eye, and Vectoraptor comes from Vectus, which is apparently the Latin name for the Isle of Wight. Hmm. Surprisingly short. Seems like there should be more to it. Anyway, and then raptor for thief because it's a dromaeosaurid and a raptor. So that makes sense. And then the green eye part is after, quote, Mr. Mick Green of Bryston Isle of Wight, who discovered and prepared the type material. Oh, that's quote. nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So vector raptor being from the western side of the Isle of Wight, is from the Wessex Formation, and that's the same area as the two new Spinosaurids, Reparovenator and Ceratosuchops, that we talked about recently.
1: So many dinosaurs from that area.
0: There are. It's not a very big island either, so it's impressive the diversity that they're finding there. It's from the Bahramian, which is about 125 to 129 million years ago, and that makes Vectoraptor pretty early for a Dromaeosaurid, it's about 50 million years before Velociraptor and about 10 million years before Deinonychus.
1: What was it doing there so early?
0: Well, it's only a few million years before Microraptor and about 10 million years after Utah
2: Raptor. Oh, okay. So
0: even though it's pretty early, it's not the earliest. And the best guess is that it got there basically as a descendant from Utah Raptor. In total, they only found five partial vertebrae. That's the entire find, is five partial vertebrae. Not super great, but that's kind of typical of the Isle of Wight. It's like a lot of British fossil localities where things just slowly erode out of cliffs and they find them. They say that's partly why we have such a big diversity of fossils from the Isle of Wight, because people have been watching these things erode out of cliffs for about 200 years Mm -hmm. and gathering them up. So we've got a pretty good amount of eroded cliff to go through, and that might be why we found so much but a lot of it is really fragmentary, unfortunately. So one person found the first two vertebrae and they were both from the back and another person found the sacral vertebrae, which are the other three vertebrae. As always for a sacrum, they're fused together and the sacrum is the part that goes between the hips. But the sacrum fragment is basically a diagonal slice through the three vertebrae. So it's basically the bottom and middle of the first vertebrae The just the middle of the second vertebra and the top, just like a little bit of the top of the third vertebra. Interesting. So, when you look at it, it really looks like it's only about one vertebra worth of material, maybe a little bit more, but technically it is three partial vertebrae together. I think all three of those sacral vertebrae combined are a lot smaller than either of the dorsal fragments, though. They consider all the bones to be from the same individual, even though they were collected by different people at slightly different times, but they have a good location of where they're from. And they're like, yeah, that's the exact same place. And when you look at the rock itself, it's very similar. The bones are about the same size or the size as you'd expect if they were from the same individual. So they're considering all of the bones to be the holotype, which is interesting because usually they don't do that unless things are a little more articulated and found together. But I guess with the Isle of Wight, it's a little more common to do that. There have also been a few teeth found in the area that might be from Vectoraptor, but we're not really sure. The reason we think they are probably from Vectoraptor is they look pretty similar to Deinonychus teeth, and Vectoraptor was similar to Deinonychus in size and also probably closely related. So the logic is, if the body of the animal looks like Deinonychus and you find a tooth that looks like Deinonychus, maybe they go together. But the teeth could also be from an early Tyrannosaur, because early Tyrannosaur teeth, especially in the young individuals, look a little bit like Deinonychus teeth. The vertebrae appear to be pretty heavily pneumatized, meaning including the air sacs, a little bit hollow.
1: So it's a light dinosaur.
0: Kind of. It's, actually, it's weird because even though the vertebrae are really pneumatized, it has large muscle scars and tall neural spines and some other details that show that it was probably like pretty bulky. Oh, So it was like big, but also lightweight.
1: So the lightweight offset the bulkiness maybe.
0: A little bit, yeah. It reminds me of Dakota Raptor when we were talking about that one and how it was like, they described it like a Ferrari, like it was big and lanky, but also like lightweight and but still probably powerful mm-hmm. same kind of thing i think going on with Vectoraptor here and they describe it as a large-bodied eudromeosaur and eudromeosaur is the group that includes pretty much everyone's favorite raptors with the exception of unenlogiens which aren't eudromeosaurs so like ostroraptor isn't a eudromeosaur but things like Utah Raptor and velociraptor and deinonychus
1: The really well-known ones with the big sickle claws.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're the eudromeosaurs, especially the big-bodied ones. Mm. The most notable unique feature of Vectoraptor is an extra ridge on the side of the vertebrae. So overall, the vertebrae look a lot like other eudromaeosaurs, but it has this one extra bit on it, which is unique. So probably enough to make it its own genus. But more so than that is that it's the only Eudromaeosaur that we know from the Isle of Wight. although it's not the first romaeosaurid from the isle of wight there's ornithodesmus which means the bird duck
1: <laughs> <laughs> interesting name
0: yeah that's pretty great that one was named by Seely in 1887 and is known only from a sacrum so kind of similar to vector raptor it's a vector raptor we've got a couple of back vertebrae but we've got pretty much the whole sacrum of Ornithodesmus. It's actually pretty interesting. They thought it was a pterosaur for a long time. And the card in the collection says Ornithodesmus. And it says like Sealy 1887. And then it says not a pterosaur. <laughs> 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 it's Just good. to be clear. Yeah. The lead author has described Vectoraptor as quote unquote heavily constructed, hmm. which is that interesting thing because it's like clearly highly pneumatized, but it does have those big muscle attachment points. And they compared its behavior to a leopard, which I think is interesting because it has the claws. And we think Dromaeosaurus probably spent a lot of times climbing trees, mm-hmm. sort of like leopards, and also pretty ferocious, able to take down things up to about its own size. Ooh. As we know, because like Velociraptor, we know, was fighting with an animal about its size. Mm-hmm. So we presume that these Dromaeosaurs were into that kind of thing. One of the back vertebrae is broken, which is actually really useful because it gave a great view of the internal structure of the bone. Hmm. They didn't have to do histology. They didn't have to make that decision (laughs) of whether or not to cut into it. It's done for them. (laughs) Exactly. So they found seven to nine growth rings, and that's all within the outer two millimeters of the bone. Wow. So like the very, very edge has a lot of growth rings. And with that close placement, they say it was almost certainly an adult. And I would add, it might even be senescent, as you were talking about the other day.
1: Like very old.
0: Yes, like elderly, basically. Since the bone is so highly pneumatized, the earlier lags are gone. So it's probably much older than seven to nine years old, especially it's just the last couple of millimeters of the bone. Mm-hmm. They estimate that those lags may have been produced during about the last one-third of Vectoraptor's life. So if you do the math on that, it would make it in the 20- to 30-year-old range when it died.
1: It's pretty old for a dinosaur.
0: It is. That's like around the same age as we see for a lot of adult tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. Not as old as the Carcharodontosaurid, which was found recently. That looks like it was in its mid-40s. Oh,
1: yeah, that is much older.
0: That's on a whole other level. But yeah, I think you're right. This is on the older end for theropods. They estimate that Vectoraptor would have reached about two and a half to three meters or eight to ten feet long and that's about like Deinonychus. So again it's pretty good comparison to use but it is still significantly smaller than Utah Raptor, which is actually a little bit older. Again we don't have that clean things just getting bigger or smaller it's all over the map. It also would have been on the smaller side for the Isle of Wight. It's way 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 smaller than both of the new spinosaurids it's also significantly smaller than eotyrannus and a couple of other theropods that are known from the isle of Wight. but it was the biggest raptor that we've found so far at least
1: bigger than the bird duck <laughs> yep that's not a pterosaur
0: it is not <laughs> in terms of what vector raptor can tell us about dromaeosaurs in general they propose that large dromaeosaurs those eudromaeosaurs Evolved in North America and then went over to Europe. Although it's unknown if they used a land bridge via Greenland or if they swam or if they rafted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to think if they rafted.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about their rafting possibilities a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Not like an intentional rafting, right. like Polynesians spreading across the Pacific Ocean.
1: Right. They didn't build a boat.
0: No, more like they got caught adrift in a storm, and ended up somewhere where they didn't want to be. More like Gulliver or something.
1: Mm. Or maybe they hitched a ride.
0: Hitched a ride on what?
1: I don't know. You see a nice-looking log. Looks pretty sturdy. And you think, I'll go on an adventure today.
0: (laughs) I don't think very many animals would choose to go adrift to sea.
1: (laughs) Yeah, probably true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But maybe, I guess. They did also include a nice piece of paleo art showing it really feathery. Kind of typical, the way they depict dromaeosaurs with the big fan tail of feathers and the almost wing-like feathers on the wings, on the arms, and then, you know, just body feathers all over the place, too. And they colored it in sort of a brown and orange pattern. Cool. pretty nice.
1: Yeah. I love paleo art. Speaking of dinosaur
0: art. Paleo art is the best type of art. Is this more paleo art?
1: No, it's a teaser of Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Which is art, but
2: I think not paleo
1: art. art is meant to be more realistic. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it's an animated series. It's not launching until summer of next year. As a quick reminder, the show's about 13-year-old Lunella Lafayette and her 10-ton T-Rex devil dinosaur. And Luna accidentally brings devil dinosaur into present-day New York City. And then together, they protect the Lower East Side.
0: <laughs> protect it from what?
1: Probably some big things if a dinosaur needs to get involved.
0: <laughs> or is it just like small-time criminals? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure it starts small and then builds up.
0: I guess, yeah, that's that's the typical Marvel arc, isn't it?
1: They're probably basing it heavily on the comics that already came out. But yeah, I'm excited to watch. And then last, a new photo from Jurassic World Dominion came out recently. Some maybe spoilers here and that shows Owen Grady taming a Parasaurolophus in a snowy environment.
0: Ooh. Yeah.
1: Apparently, we're going to see that image around the beginning of the film when Owen Grady and Claire Deering are trying to save Parasaurolophus, or a few Parasaurolophus, in the Sierra Nevada from poachers.
0: Yeah, that would that's an interesting point. The idea that dinosaurs roaming loose all over the U.S. and what kind of havoc they'd cause. Humans have never had a tough time of, exterminating megafauna or capturing it (laughs) so yeah that would definitely be a big part of it
1: so Jurassic World Dominion is going to be set four years after Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom which gives the dinosaurs a lot of time to spread out
0: yeah that's true certainly across North America I don't know how fast I guess the estimates for most dinosaurs is like three to six months for egg laying and maybe if they do it every season, like every year, yeah, that you could have like three or four generations. So you take two to the fourth, maybe you'd have sixteen of each type of dinosaur. I, oh I guess it depends on how size how large the clutches are. Yeah, because you can multiply that by the clutch size. So you could have hundreds, I suppose, of different types of dinosaurs potentially.
1: Also, some of them were shipped out right away to different parts of the world, so that helped spread it. And I'd say there's a lot more uh, rafts these days, or raft-like things, human-made boats. In terms of dinosaurs spreading out, they could catch a ride.
0: Oh, you're thinking like mice on a ship?
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: (laughs) But I think these were mostly big dinosaurs. (laughs) It's hard for them to sneak (laughs) onto a boat inconspicuously. They're still compies. (laughs) I suppose that's true.
1: As another spoiler alert, the big bad villain in the movie is going to be Lewis Dodgson. Dodgson? Yeah. Got Dodgson here. I'm wondering if they're going to be taking more of what he was like from The Lost World, the novel, since we recently reread that.
0: Yeah. Dodgson was like the main villain in The Lost World, basically the main villain in Jurassic Park as well, Mm -hmm. but sort of via Nedry. So that's interesting. They're bringing back Dodgson.
1: Yeah. But we still have to wait, what, six months at this point?
0: Yeah, <laughs> go full time.
1: I'm sure there'll be lots more teasers and spoilers coming out before then. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with David Levering. But of course, as we always do, We talked way too long, and so we have an unabridged version for our patrons, so if you want to listen to the longer version rather than listening to this abridged version, you can get it from your custom RSS feed. This week we're joined by David Levering, the Camps Director at the Fort Hayes State University's Sternberg Museum of Natural History, and we're talking to him today because he created a Sternberg Museum of Natural History online on Gather Town, which we got to see at this year's SVP as the Closing Night Social. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you guys for having me. My pleasure.
1: So for our listeners who might not be familiar with Gather Town, would you mind giving like a, a quick maybe description of like what it's like to be exploring this museum online?
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. It's Imagine like an old school like Super Nintendo <laughs> video game, which for some might not mean anything, or Pokemon, like early Pokemon games. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought of.
1: I thought Chip's <laughs> Challenge, which I think is even less relevant.
2: <laughs> some of the old Zelda games, like yeah. pre-Nintendo 64. Like I, I think that a lot of these two and a half dimensional like 32-bit, well, I guess, I guess they get classified as 8-bit now. Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> So it's, it's like an old school looking video game kind of art style. One of the advantages of this is that I, I think it's lower kind of bandwidth memory demands on, on whoever's using it. So you're, you don't necessarily have to have like a high end computer in order to make it work, which is quite helpful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it looks a lot like those kind of relatively old school video games. And you kind of walk around through these different environments. There's some that Gather Town offers you can rent out. You can go explore. You can also make your own and upload them and fill them with things, which is what I have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, filled it with many, many things.
2: Yep. Many, many things. Well, I know for
1: us, when we we created a character to, yes. to go in, and then we can walk around and interact with things in this case, because for the SVP social, the Sternberg Museum of Natural History online. And then and other
2: people. And other people, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then when yeah. we got yeah.
1: when we got in proximity of other people, then our cameras turned on. We were able to chat with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was the first. I think there was maybe a Gather Town at last year's SVP was the first time I had tried it. And it was more like just a, there was no museum aspect to it. It was just like an open field. It was probably one of those standard ones you were talking about. You can rent from Gather Town. And it was just like a bunch of tables. And, like, maybe, like, I think there was, like, a basketball court or something outside. And it's just, like, whoever you were near, you could talk to. And that was sort of the scheme. But I loved the additional layer of the museum with it.
1: Right. There were things we could read, watch, listen to. There's even that whole ballroom area with all the games (laughs) was amazing. A lot of games. And then, of course, the the paleontology sites.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think I was at that same social at SVP last year. I think uh, Kirsten Formoso mm-hmm. put that on, and it was like a park. Yeah. And that is one of the internal ones for GatherTown. And and the, the proximity-based video chat feature that you mentioned, which is really one of their biggest selling points, like it looks cool, but that very technical function of that platform is one of the main reasons why when I first used it during that same social um, a year ago, thought that this could be a really good tool to solve some problems with kind of zoom based online education mm-hmm. where we were, we're all kind of still in a uh, heavy quarantine at that point, <laughs> zoom has its uses. It's a good tool, but it is not a tool for everything. And mm-hmm. there are just some things that get lost just by the nature of, of how it works. And so when I was using gather town during SVP, during the social. It struck me that like, oh, this removes a bunch of the kind of rigid boundaries that exist within Zoom, where it's kind of like one person talks at a time, unless you're talking over each other, which is awful. Um, <laughs> or you have to do this kind of clunky breakout room thing, mm-hmm. which is fine, but it's it feels very inorganic. Like I've used it. it, it it's functional, but it's not like moving from conversation to conversation and being able to walk around at all. Whereas with gather town, you can just literally walk from person to person and say, hello, or you can go and click on interact with objects and media. Like it's a very user friendly, basically gate like social game world design platform and it, yeah, just fixed all these things that was breaking my brain, trying to figure out how I was going to solve them <laughs> before the 2021 uh, summer camps.
0: Gotcha. Did you consider anything else, or was it like when you saw Gather Town last year, you were like you immediately saw how like it could be manipulated to your will and would solve all the problems that you wanted?
2: Yeah, I mean being able to have that kind of control over design was definitely something that struck me right away. O- way like as soon as i started looking into it more which is basically the same night i was like (laughs) i logged into it i'd never used this thing before i was like this seems interesting and then as i was using it and kind of seeing how it worked i think i texted my boss that same evening i was just (laughs) like i (laughs) this was amazing and i think i have a solution to all these issues that we had with zoom based summer camps last year which went it was in 2020 is when we had all Zoom-based. And those went very well, but they were, again, they were kind of rigid in, mm. in a lot of ways. And that's not taking anything away from the instructional staff, all the instructors and TAs, who did a phenomenal job, especially given that we had to redo all of our curricula in, like, five weeks. Oh, yeah. wow, yeah.
0: So, overall, you think that GatherTown was a good replacement for the summer camps?
2: We still use Zoom a bit. It wasn't a full replacement, hmm. um, just because building these environments in Gather Town is very time consuming. And I did most of it myself. So there's not <laughs> a lot of it's there's only so many hours in a day. That's mm-hmm. that's the that's the biggest issue. I think for doing a presentation where you're just trying to get a bunch of basic or, or kind of foundational information into a bunch of students very quickly, Zoom still has a place. But there's certain kinds of, of what I've been calling like synthesis learning that you get in a field setting where if you go out and, and, and you're with like an expert and you're doing a dinosaur fossil dig or something like that, or mm-hmm. or you're prospecting for fossils, not even digging them up. You haven't bound them yet and you're out there looking for them. And you've never been to that place before. There's a lot of, of kind of subtle learning that happens on the way to even finding a single dinosaur fossil. Mm-hmm where you may have questions about like, oh, well, where do I need to be looking for the fossils? Well, the most fossiliferous layers are from, are, are these Jurassic rocks that are kind of greenish colored, let's say. That may seem like just kind of tangential information, but it's actually really important as far as engaging those critical thinking skills. So if you get a student thinking about, oh, I'm going to have a better chance of finding fossils while i looking in this particular layer. That's something that is now in their brain. And if you take them to a new environment that has that same layer, they will not, they will ideally, they will not ask you that exact same question again. They will have that information and they will build on it by saying like, oh, well, I found fossils in this tan layer, not the green layer, (laughs) but they look different. Why is that? So you're basically, it's, it's something called scaffolding in pedagogy where you're, Slowly constructing like a, a base foundation of knowledge, and then you're building a house on top of it, to to use a metaphor.
0: Gotcha. Is that partly how you selected your field sites? I know you've got several field sites, and they seem very spread out around the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume they're not field sites that you're going to regularly.
2: Yeah. So one of them, I assume you're talking about, was the one based on the Karoo mm-hmm. supergroup in South Africa. Yeah. We already had a camp that was going to be on Permian paleontology. I think was the topic. It was, a, it was a two-week high school virtual camp, and I knew I wanted to do something where the students were going to go outside and have to kind of do some critical thinking, comprehensive knowledge awareness kinds of activities. Because what we what we ended up doing is I constructed, as as you guys were walking through this, like massive stratigraphic sequence that matched up with what you would find in parts of the Karoo supergroup if you actually went there. The scaling was very different because you can't make a 500-meter-thick rock unit in Gather Town because it'll (laughs) take up the whole screen. (laughs) So everything had to be kind of scaled down appropriately Hmm. so that it would work at all. But in doing that, the students were able to do kind of a a facsimile of geology, paleontology fieldwork completely virtually. So the students made geologic maps. They made stratigraphic columns as part of their, like, capstone project for the camp. They kind of did some really neat working together to find all the fossils because knowing what fossils were there and knowing what the rocks were was an important part of the entire project. So... They were able to do some pretty advanced stuff without leaving their houses effectively <laughs> and being able to synthesize a lot of information about reading stratigraphic records and uh, lithologies, like what kind of rock is this and being able to translate that to an understanding of how that place had changed over time, which is like college level geosciences. And we were doing it in a virtual world with like 16 year olds
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome yeah Yeah, i know for us when we first got into the i think we started in the caro super group and you start out at like the lower stratigraphic layer and it was just like there's a fish there's another fish there's another fish and we're like how do we get higher (laughs) we gotta get out of the world of only fish (laughs) and into the world of things are walking around on land Which was where we want to be, since that's where the dinosaurs are. But sure, (laughs) yeah, we needed your tips on how to find it too, because that, like you said, that map is so huge that finding your way, wiggling up the layers stratigraphically, Mm -hmm. it's pretty tricky. But it was a fun maze to get through. And
1: then you also you saw pieces of a dinosaur, and then you could kind of, when you saw enough of them, piece put them together. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. So there's the dinosaur hunting world also. So the the super group one is like the hard mode. Mm-hmm. um version. We got some interesting feedback via via surveys. And one of the pieces of feedback was that there were too many of like the like clam and fish fossils <laughs> and things like that. And not enough big fossils. And this is this really made me laugh <laughs> because that's actually what fossil hunting is like. Yeah. Like if you if you go fossil hunting in western Kansas where where the Sternberg is you're going to find fossil clams the second you step foot out of the car, <laughs> and then you're going to keep finding fossil clams constantly until you leave to the point where once you know how to ID a fossil clam, you will see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just super common. And so having some of those terrestrial tetrapods that you were looking for in the, in the Karoo just weren't in the lower rocks, which was mm-hmm. done very intentionally, because we didn't want it we wanted the students to focus on the rock and and their mapping methods and not get caught up in trying to do taxon IDs mm-hmm. right from the start. Like this was this was a very deliberate choice. Uh, that's a good idea. And making it somewhat difficult for them to start finding a lot of those vertebrates. So by the time they got actually got up to the layers with the the tetrapods, like these these terrestrial animals, they had already been doing the basics for a couple levels, and so they weren't going to get, I guess, derailed mm-hmm. by get, getting excited because they found a De- dimetrodon skull or something like that. Yeah, and some fossils are a lot more common. Like I was saying with the clams, <laughs> yep. like kept finding fish. Yeah, that's because when reading about this in some of those layers, fish fossils were really common. Like that's a direct translation of of field surveys of some of these uh, units within the crew. And so that's reflected. And it was really funny to me that that was seen as like (laughs) an error on our part. When it's like, no, 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 no. That's just how it is. I love that.
0: (laughs) That's just one thing that doesn't translate as well to GatherTown because it's like you're aware that somebody... Intentionally created this. Whereas if you're out in the world, no one would give you feedback like, How come I'm not finding dinosaurs here? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And be like, Oh, yeah, I guess this is just a really common thing.
2: (laughs) I tangent it off, but you were talking about the dinosaur hunting world, which is Mm -hmm. a much simpler setup than the crew. The crew, like this hard mode, is meant for like high schoolers to do college level stratigraphy. The (laughs) fossil hunting world is basically just three different levels. Going from like Triassic, Jurassic to Cretaceous with a marine to terrestrial transition. So when you start in the Triassic, you're gonna find a lot of ocean fossils and and some larger vertebrates. I think that there's is there an ichthyosaur there? There's some kind of large oh, yeah. ripped Maybe a plesiosaur, one of those. So, something like that. <laughs> um, and then there's a crocodile in the Jurassic section. And it's all broken apart. The, the fossils in these worlds are cropped. So they're basically cut up into little pieces and scattered. Hmm. The purpose behind that is to make the students find all of them and reassemble them because if you just get the whole picture, they stop thinking about it. They see it once they're like, that is a plesiosaur (laughs) and I'm not thinking about this anymore. Yeah. Like they've made their decision. They've made like a snap judgment and they're moving on. Whereas you give it to them in pieces. They can't look at all of that all at the same time. So they, what a lot of them would do is they would screen capture images of the fossils and then they would put them or they would sketch them in a notebook or something like that and they will put that back together and then they would attempt to make an ID uh, talking with an instructor. But in doing that, they had to spend a lot more time looking at the fossil hmm. and doing kind of an assessment of the anatomy and scaling, like how big is this thing? So you're just making it a little bit of a slower digestion process for the student for that information so that they are making more observations about the animal and not just speed running through this level <laughs> quite so much. It sounds
0: like you started with the field sites, right? Was that the where it started or did it start as the museum?
2: It started with the field sites. Okay. Um, with the reason for that being there are lots of museums around the Mm-hmm. If you w- obviously during COVID that was different, lots of things were closed. But if you are a kid that likes fossils or or paleontology and and what have you, going to a museum is likely something that you and your family can do without too much trouble. Not everyone, and that's a whole separate set of considerations for, for me. But going to a field site where you get to have this like robust exciting experience where you can look for things and use all like a lot of these kids that know a lot about dinosaurs and fossils, like they're pretty well into it. They know a lot for their age and these kinds of synthesis experiences where they're getting to take all that information and apply it in a way that's actually kind of challenging to them is harder for them to come by mm. than just then being able to go to a museum and take a bunch of stuff in. And, and that's in no way meant to take anything away from that experience. I like was in every museum that I could set foot in when I was growing up, (laughs) but it's easier to access that kind of facility than it is a field site. And so it was very much like, this is going to be harder for these kids to access any version of than a, an outright natural history museum. So we started there.
0: When did you decide to start making a virtual museum to accompany the field sites?
2: It had been kind of on my list for a while, but it's kind of a, it's also a different animal in, in many ways. So it's thinking about how you structure your information. So I'm making a field environment. It's very open. So like for the Karoo, I could kind of strategically place certain kinds of information or certain experiences wherever I wanted to kind of progress a student from easier to harder. And like it's like taking a bunch of stacks of note cards and walking through like a house and just throwing the note cards in, in a room. <laughs> <laughs> so they can find the information and there's this kind of mystery puzzle solving game of like to find all the information and put it together and I'm going to get an answer and then I will solve the mystery, which is way more fun than somebody just giving you the answer. It's like, People giving giving you a, the secret behind some kind of puzzle. And it's like, well, that kills all the fun of it. Now there's no challenge. Yeah. So we can take information that we could just as easily just tell them and distribute it through these field environments. And then they have to find it and assess it and put the pieces together and talk to the instructors. And it's this very engaging, dynamic process that we could just as easily just tell them to read it in a book. But for most kids, not all of them met plenty that love just absorbing information by the bucket load via reading, but it can be harder to get deep learning and really getting the information embedded in a functional way in memory through just rote reading. Mm-hmm. But if you turn it into a game and kind of give it to them in little tiny chunks, you can drive that learning a little bit more effectively. So that was a big reason for doing the field environments. The museum
0: that's giving them the
2: answer, right? (laughs) Because you're giving them the answer. That's exactly right. So the question in building the museum for me, one was an architecture one because there's just not a lot of resources out there to build a museum. As a video game world. Like if you want to make a castle or a dungeon or anything like that, there's plenty and actually the museum itself is built using a castle. Art set.
0: It does look castly, but mm-hmm. there are some museums that are fairly castly, like Oxford and the British yes. Museum and stuff. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I actually used those as like design bases for building this version. The virtual Starboard Museum looks nothing like the actual Starboard Museum <laughs> um, because I couldn't if I wanted to. Hmm. They just, I didn't have the resources for it. But I think it worked out pretty well. I, I definitely based on some of those very castly looking museums in Europe. That's also why the, the collections basement looks like a dungeon is because I use a dungeon in order to build it. but that's also kind of an inside paleo joke where collections facilities are often downstairs and mm-hmm. they are nicknamed the dungeon. Um, I've heard I've heard this used by many people, and so that was like kind of a a wink and a nod to that yeah. that meme within the profession, I guess. But anyway, yeah, you're you're exactly right. You're giving them the information. So the question then becomes, how do we do that in a way that retains some level of that exploration and fun?
1: Because it's not just bits of text that you want to have in in the museum too. There's also uh, we saw some videos of people talking yes. about their work.
2: Yeah. So having multimedia components is also really important. Some things are just better done having somebody kind of verbally explain it. Sometimes that information will stick with certain learners better than. Reading will. So, offering a a diversity of delivery mechanisms is something that I am very keen on doing. And it also lets them see people that are doing the work. So, for example, like uh, Dr. Laura Wilson, who's our paleontologist at the Sternberg, you see far more of her in that museum than you see me. (laughs) And for good reason, she's the scientist who's doing the paleontology that we're talking about in the museum. Mm -hmm. So, Being able to put a face to some of this information is actually something that in surveys I've, I've gotten from people saying they, they would like to see more of the scientists doing the work and not just text walls and pretty pictures, which was interesting, not necessarily surprising, but interesting that people would articulate it so specifically Yeah, like, oh, this is something you definitively want more of. Okay.
0: They want that fishbowl lab where they can watch the scientists scraping away the dirt from the fossil and
2: <laughs> finding out what it yeah. is. yeah, well, and there's also kind of a, a phenomenon that i'm I'm aware of for social for social media. I can't say I practice it very well because it's not really my personality, but people will often follow a social media account for the personality behind it and the content that person the personality or personalities is producing. They want to follow a person, not necessarily just a a faceless brand. (laughs) And I think I could be wrong. It's I'm, I'm certainly not trained in these kinds of things, but I would expect that there's a similar thing going on there where it's one thing to be excited about dinosaurs and, and the fossils, but as you perhaps get a bit older and, and more aware of, of science as a process, there may be more desire to not just follow the science, but to be a little bit more engaged with the scientists themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
2: But that's something else that we can do in Gather Town, Like those videos with Dr. Wilson talking about some of the work being done at the Sternberg, for example. We can embed all kinds of little video clips of her talking about it or anybody talking about stuff and really give people that kind of experience. But without turning our uh, research paleontologists into tour guides, whose time is all taken up just interacting with the public, that's not their job. Hmm. But if we can just have these little recorded snippets embedded in these environments, we can still kind of give people a little bit more of that base behind the data, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in, in what I think is a very efficient way.
0: Cool. Do you have a favorite thing that you came up with for the museum?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um... My favorite thing that I came up with is I think definitely secret passages and the fact that the collections basement isn't just something with a sign up saying this way to collections mm-hmm. like you have to work a little bit to find it it has a little bit more mystique to it in that way and it's not just full of cabinets like there's a giant ground sloth down there that will talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a portal to a tropical rainforest that you can jump through and go to like a completely different world. So I think that the kind uh, of creativity and dynamic of the collection basement and the way that that allowed to do some really different things, both engaging with the field areas, but also engaging with the exhibit spaces, is probably my favorite thing just because it really fulfills that entire goal more than probably anything else in that museum of let's do things that are different that Mm -hmm. are going to really catch people's attention and make them want to explore more
0: yeah yeah i think that's i like the field sites a lot too but i the the collection, I think, was the first thing anybody told me when we, because we got into the gather town when people had already been exploring for maybe thirty minutes. They're like, there, right. "I hear there's a way you could get down into the collection and <laughs> see like everything." <laughs> it was like a couple people told us that. We we're like, "Oh, okay, we gotta find that." <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and just I mean, as you mentioned too, you have all these pieces together, and the gamification aspects, and it's just like a totally new, different way. To approach learning and paleontology. And, you know, in some ways it's even more accessible. Like, yeah, you, you can't go to these field sites too easily.
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially you're talking about like going to South Africa.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and there's a big part of this for me also that is, that is driven by going to these kinds of field sites, doing, doing the kinds of camps that we offer in person. They can be financially uh, kind of exclusionary. Because mm-hmm. if you have a student that is, you know, wants to explore these topics, but they find out that they have to take a single class that's going to cost them many thousands of dollars to participate in to get their degree, that can be a big turnoff. There's, there's well-founded research demonstrating that these kinds of things, for many reasons, financial being one of them, can be a real off-ramp for, for students that are maybe less represented and in the earth and life sciences yeah, and the same with summer camps, like we have a pretty good scholarship program. We help a lot of kids every year, but the nature of running a field camp for high schoolers to go and do field paleontology there, they are expensive to run. The people that we have staffing them are pretty highly trained and we, we pay them what their experience and training is worth. And even in doing that, the cost and the travel and having the field gear, having the stuff just to go do it in the first place. There's a lot of really, really bright kids out there that just can't access these things. Mm-hmm. And so one of one of my big motivations behind this, in addition to just creating kind of a, a novel, exciting teaching tool, is being able to take a version of these big synthesis learning opportunities. That's, that's what I have found. Fieldwork is a great place to talk about a lot of different things all at the same time and really get students putting pieces together at their own speed and on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And if there are financial barriers to that, which there are and, and likely always will be for programs like, like this, at uh, the size we're doing that, being able to help that problem by creating a virtual version that functions in a very similar way and has a very social aspect where the the students talk to each other. It's not quite so serious and rigid as like I was saying at the beginning. But they can explore and they can ask questions and they can do things very much at their own speed and they can solve mysteries and play games and do all this stuff that is much more dynamic than just kind of a lecture activity quiz kind of format. Mm Mm-hmm. And we can make that available for a substantially lower dollar amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: So I know that the field sites and the museum and everything, it was built originally for kids for the summer camps. But are there plans to, like, could people in the future rent out this virtual space the way you can... I know you can rent out sometimes uh, museum spaces for like an evening or, you know, special events kind of thing.
2: We've talked about that a little. Eventually, yes, we'll be able to rent these spaces out. We just don't have a model for it to just send people to at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess on that note, where's the best place if somebody wanted to find out more about you and your work online for them to go?
2: The best place to go to learn about this virtual stuff in particular is probably Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at D.A. Levering. Great. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about how you constructed this world and why you built it the way you did. <laughs> oh, and we, all had, that.
1: we had a great time exploring.
0: We did. It was so much bigger and more extensive than we had ever hoped for. So, <laughs> Also, thank you for creating it because that was really yeah. fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again, David, for chatting with us. We had a great time exploring the virtual museum. And for our listeners, if you want to see for yourselves what it looks like, we have a short YouTube video to accompany this interview. And that link will be in our show notes. And you can see what it's like to move around the Sternberg Museum of Natural History online.
0: And also check out all those field sites. Which were pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Very unexpected. You, you know, you're going to go to a virtual museum and all of a sudden you go through like a wormhole. and You're in the desert looking for fossils.
1: Yeah, lots of fun hidden things in that museum. And now, onto our dinosaur of the day, Probactrosaurus, which was a request from Talon via our Patreon and Discord. So, thanks. It was a hadrosauroid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Inner Mongolia, China, in the Dashuego Formation. Probactrosaurus looks like a typical hadrosaur. It's got that duck bill and the bulky body. It was medium sized and gracile. It's estimated to be about 18 feet or five and a half meters long and weigh one ton. It was an herbivore, and it had a narrow snout and a long jaw, and of course, tooth batteries. And no crest was on its skull.
0: When you said tooth batteries, I was thinking like a double A battery, but you mean like a whole bunch of teeth jammed together, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> Dinosaurs didn't have access to double A batteries. No batteries required. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no crest on the skull. It did have long slender arms and hands and a small thumb spike. Bactrosaurus probably mostly walked on four legs. The fossils were found in 1959 and 1960 during a Russian Chinese expedition. The holotype is a partial skeleton with a skull. Another partial skeleton and fragments have also been found. It was described in 1966 by Anatoly Rozdezvensky, and the type species is Probactrosaurus gobiensis. The genus name means before Bactrosaurus. And it refers to the hypothesis that Probactrosaurus was a direct ancestor of Bactrosaurus, but scientists don't think that anymore.
0: Anagenesis. Mm-hmm. Really hard to prove.
1: Yes. The species name Gobiensis refers to the Gobi Desert. Raj Desvensky named a second species, Probactrosaurus alashanicus, based on fragments in 1966, based on the back of a skull. And that species name refers to the Alxa League at the western part of Inner Mongolia. But in 2002, David Norman revised Probactrosaurus, and he said that the holotype of Probactrosaurus alishonicus was lost and that it was a synonym of Probactrosaurus gobiensis.
0: Yeah, especially if it's lost, it's going to be hard to support it being its own species.
1: Exactly. Lu Junchang named Probactrosaurus. Mazongshanensis in 1997, based on fossils found in 1992. That was a partial skull and skeleton, and that species name refers to the Mazongshan region, but later it was formally described and renamed as Gonpochwansaurus. Probactrosaurus may be closely related to Siamodon, an iguanodontian found in Thailand, but they have different numbers of tooth
0: positions. It's a long ways to go, Thailand to Mongolia. Yeah. But I suppose not as far as, say, the U.S. to the Isle of Wight. So (laughs) over a long period of time, millions of years, those distances don't seem so far. Very true. And our fun fact of the day is that it's unlikely that dinosaurs had venom, but some of them may have been toxic.
1: Oh, so still watch out. Oh, that's like the T-Rex bite.
0: It is not about bites. It's a whole other thing. Okay. There's multiple ways they could be toxic, though. The reason I got into this, I was thinking about platypus and how they have that barb. The males have a barb on their back foot, which is venomous. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about velociraptors and how they have the crazy claws. And it's like, I wonder if any dinosaur could have had a poisonous claw. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't find any evidence for that. But I did find out another way they might have been toxic. So... Real quick, a little background. Venom is a poison that is actively secreted by animals, and usually that's through a bite or a sting, occasionally as a spray, if you're thinking like a spitting cobra or something like that, Mm -hmm. that could still be considered venom. But usually you're talking about being, being bitten or stung by a venom, and that could be like you're talking about with Tyrannosaurus, if it's biting, unless you mean- a bacterial I meant sort the septic
1: bite yeah yeah
0: so that can be a separate thing that's not really venom but I guess it is still toxic so you're right that could be another way I didn't include that in my list though there are other ways animals can be toxic without having venom too usually it's a self-defense mechanism for example plants and animals that have toxins in their body so that things won't eat them because at least animals that hunt by sight will see that animal and know "Uh uh-oh if i eat that it's gonna hurt or it's gonna kill me so i shouldn't eat it and a lot of times they're bright colors (laughs) like bright colored frogs for example so that birds and lizards that hunt by sight see them and they're like okay yeah i can see it's there i could catch it but Mm. i don't want to (laughs) (laughs) i know better yeah exactly so the dilophosaurus in jurassic park spat venom like a cobra and we've talked before about like, we can't definitively prove that Dilophosaurus couldn't do that, but there are a lot of good reasons to think that it didn't. The most obvious one is probably that it doesn't have, dinosaurs don't have much in common with snakes. The most recent common ancestor between snakes and dinosaurs is about 265 million years ago, <laughs> <laughs> which is about 25 million years before dinosaurs evolved, and about... About 150 million years before the oldest snake that we've found. Yeah,
1: they're not really related.
0: They're, yeah, not super close. Not much more related than we are to snakes or mm-hmm. anything like that. In other words, Dilophosaurus evolved about 100 million years before the first snakes. I found reference to the first cobra-like snake. And I think it's about 25 million years ago from Africa, which is obviously way, way, way later. Mm-hmm. So. If Dilophosaurus did anything like that, it would have had to evolve it on its own. And additionally, the skulls and teeth of dinosaurs don't look like they had venom. Those things actually do fossilize. We have examples of mammals and things that have venomous bites, presumably because they have these spots in their skulls that look like they would be a good place for a venom gland and the the teeth have the sort of channel on it that you expect to see if they have a venomous bite. None of that stuff is on Dilophosaurus or really any dinosaur that we've found so far. So, highly unlikely that dinosaurs had venomous bites, at least the ones we've found so far. But there is a subset of squamates, basically lizards, called toxicophorans, which means those who bear toxins. <laughs> <laughs> and that includes all of the venomous reptiles. Not a lot of people use this classification, this clade, but it's pretty useful. It includes all snakes, monitor lizards, and iguanas.
1: There's venomous iguanas?
0: Yeah, a lot of iguanas, maybe even all iguanas, are a little bit venomous, but they're not dangerous to people. Okay. The venom, really, what's dangerous about iguanas is that they have sharp teeth and they have claws, Mm -hmm. which is why you don't want to mess with them. But usually, iguanas pretty much keep to themselves. They're herbivorous, they're not interested in hunting. At least, I think they're herbivorous. They might not all be herbivorous. (laughs) I don't know why they have venomous bites. But. The group, since it's a monophyletic clade, it has to include all of the non-venomous versions of these things, too. Because obviously a lot of snakes aren't venomous. But it also includes chameleons, which aren't venomous. Lots of non-venomous lizards. And mosasaurs. Because mosasaurs, again, are squamates, which is really funny and weird. (laughs) It is weird. (laughs) that They're like snake relatives. So strange. And that group... Toxicophoreans includes about 60% of the known squamates. So it's a pretty large group. And I think that might be why people just usually say squamates and they don't bother breaking it down. It's too broad. Yeah. But squamates as a group didn't evolve until about 200 million years ago either, which was long after dinosaurs were established. So the group that includes all the venomous reptiles evolved after dinosaurs had already split off, in other words. So yeah, again, unlikely that dinosaurs had venom. If we use birds and crocodilians as our modern dinosaur analogs, which is basically what we always do, there aren't any birds or crocodiles that produce venom. So again, probably dinosaurs didn't. There have been reports of crocodile gallbladders being poisonous, but apparently that's a myth that there was a scientist who had read all these reports of it and how people were being poisoned with it and all this stuff. And so he fed a bunch of gallbladder juice to some mice and they were all totally fine. So that seems to be a myth. However, there are quite a few birds that contain poison and are toxic.
1: Oh, and they're brightly colored so they can warn you.
0: Some of them are, not all of them. Oh, no. So there's a, a whole subset of birds known as the toxic birds, but they they aren't like a monophyletic group like the toxicoferans. how that's, you know, a monophyletic group of squamates that includes, you know, specific animals that can produce venom. Toxic birds pop up all over the bird family tree. There's like songbirds, there's geese, there's poultry, I guess you could say, quail, and they just, there's multiple birds that have evolved this ability to become toxic.
1: That's weird then that there might not be any dinosaurs, any non-avian dinosaurs that were venomous, but then their their descendants are.
0: So these are toxic, not venomous. Oh, sorry. Toxic. That's why I think dinosaurs might have been able to be toxic because we've seen, uh, we find all these birds which seem to have independently evolved the ability to be toxic. Mm. But I don't think venomous. That's why I was like, venomous means you're biting or you're stinging. Toxic means it, it could be biting or stinging, or it could also be just that your meat is harmful or skin or whatever. Got it. So... Of the toxic birds, they're all thought to collect poison from either poisonous plants or insects when they're eating them, which I think is true about a lot of sea creatures and stuff too. They eat something and then they collect it. That's also how birds get their color. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fancy ways. That's how we get vitamins. (laughs) You know, if you eat the stuff, your body can filter it and use it in special ways.
1: Like how flamingos turn pink from eating shrimp.
0: Exactly. So one potentially poisonous bird is the common quail, also known as the European quail. Hmm. This is the bird that lots of people eat. So quail occasionally eat poisonous plants, which can make their meat poisonous. And the most likely candidate there is hemlock seeds. Hemlock is a very famous poison. I feel like it's in Shakespearean literature and stuff. People are always talking about hemlock. And there's actually an illness named specifically for quail called coternism. And that's after the quail genus name Coturnix. It kind of reminds me of like Cuckold and the cuckoo bird. Mm -hmm. There's all these bird things that like bird behaviors become English words. So Coturnism causes muscle cells to break down and occasionally causes kidney failure, which can kill you.
1: Ooh, Yeah, that's not good.
0: And there are many cases of people dying from eating quail that have previously presumably eaten hemlock seeds or some other poisonous plant although it's not usually deadly if you get to a hospital quickly. They can treat you for it. There was a case, I think, just a few years ago that was reported in a a peer-reviewed journal of an African man who ate a quail and like 14 hours later was having kidney failure, rushed to the hospital, and he recovered. But he wouldn't have if it wasn't for modern medicine. So good to avoid, I think. I don't really want to eat quail anymore. There are also two cute little birds. There are Pituis. And also so they are also both really fun names, (laughs) that live in New Guinea that are toxic, they can both secrete neurotoxins through their skin, just like poison dart frogs. And the toxin also sometimes covers their feathers.
1: So it's all over.
0: It is. And we think they collect the toxin from eating a beetle with the same toxin that the poison dart frogs use. So it's kind of interesting. It's like a, a frog thousands of miles away, and this bird have evolved the same ability. Interestingly, researchers who have held the birds report numbness in their hands, or sometimes tingling, just from holding them.
1: It's pretty strong.
0: Yeah. And in larger doses, that neurotoxin can cause paralysis or even stop a heart. So nobody eats these birds.
1: And... Try not to touch them, sounds like.
0: (laughs) Yeah, seriously. There's also the spur winged goose in Africa, which has a very powerful poison in its meat. It's also collected from the beetles that it eats.
1: (laughs) Beetles?
0: Beetles are, some of them are intense. Yeah. As some bonus fun facts, the spur winged goose is the fastest waterfowl, period at 142 kilometers an hour or 88 miles an hour.
1: It's fast and toxic.
0: It is very fast, yeah. It's also the largest waterfowl in Africa and is one of the largest geese on Earth at about 6 kilograms or 13 pounds. So you'd think it would be a tempting thing to hunt and eat, but everyone who lives around it knows you don't eat this thing. It's not, it's not good. It's
1: one of the rare animals without predators, maybe.
0: It might be, yeah. It's also super aggressive, it's called the spur winged goose because it has a spur on its wing, which is basically like a sharp, it looks like a claw sticking out of the front of its wing. And they use them to attack other water birds and also rivals during breeding season. And they weigh 13 pounds. It's yeah. like, that's an intense animal. It's got
1: everything going for it.
0: It does. <laughs> the only thing it's missing is the venom, I guess.
1: Yeah. But it's got toxic. So
0: it does. And claws and anger.
1: And size.
0: Yeah, and then one last one I want to mention is the hoopoe, which is a really pretty bird. It's got a really long, thin bill and this like sort of cowlick of pink feathers. Mm, And
1: and how does this bird hurt you?
0: Well, it has. It doesn't really hurt so much as it irritates because it has a very skunk-like defense. So the brooding females, while they're brooding, produce a substance that smells like rotting meat. And they produce it in their preening gland, which is the one that they, they use to keep their feathers nice and oily and in good shape when they preen. And so in that process, it gets all over their feathers and then also all over their eggs. And that's the whole idea. They want animals coming by to be like, I don't want those eggs. I don't wanna be anywhere near this rotting disaster. And then when the Hoopoo chicks are born, they also produce the smell so that they're just covered in it all the time and they can shoot streams of their feces at intruders.
1: Impressive.
0: Yeah. So very skunk-like, I think. Mm-hmm. Except it would be like if a skunk also just smelled bad all the time in addition to spraying bad smells. Yeah. So those are I think all of these are possible mechanisms that non-avian dinosaurs could have used to deter predators.
1: <laughs> Shooting feces, yeah.
0: <laughs> but unfortunately, none of these features are likely to fossilize. They're much less likely to fossilize than signs of venom.
1: Oh, so we may never know.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, though. I mean, if it's evolved so many times in modern birds,
1: that they probably something had that.
0: You'd think so. Over the hundred plus million years that dinosaurs were around, something's eating a plant to get a little bit toxic, or a beetle.
1: Mm-hmm. I would love to know. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already joined our community of dinosaur enthusiasts, you can do so at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again. And until next time.